0: Thanks for choosing to join us in the BGSM podcast on travel medicine. I'm Liam West, sports and exercise medicine registrar based in Melbourne, and I've got the pleasure of being joined on the line by Professor Wayne Durman. He provides medical expertise across various sporting domains, including FIFA, the South African IOC Research Centre, the Paralympic Medical Commission, and the Institute of Sport and Exercise Medicine at Stellenbosch Bosch University in Cape Town. Thanks for sharing your knowledge with the BGSM community today, Professor Durman.
1: Thanks very much for having me, uh, Liam, and uh, it's a really honor to be speaking to your listeners.
0: So listeners, we actually recorded this podcast in March of 2020 when the COVID crisis, which you well know now, is starting to unfold globally. And since then, we've seen a drastic behavioral changes amongst various aspects of sports medicine, including how our athletes travel to competition. We thought that you the listener should really get an insight into these changes. And therefore we've managed to persuade professor Dermon to come back onto the line for a second time. And we're thankful for that to cover this topic. And before we connect you into the full podcast, so professor Dermon, what actually has happened to the world of travel medicine since we last spoke in March?
1: Well, uh, Liam, I think uh, it's totally transformed. First of all, uh, we're living in a, almost a different world now to the one that we used to. And, um, travel and the movement of people from uh, one geographical region to another is at the very heart and soul of this whole crisis that we find ourselves in. So, travel now, if if you are lucky enough to be traveling, um, it looks completely different. There are a whole host of enhanced safety and hygiene methods uh, that are used at airports and during uh, flights. And these uh, would range from enhanced screening procedures and enhanced social distancing measures to the use of masks and hand sanitizers, which have become mandatory right away across the world. In, in some areas, um, there are quite advanced uh, methods that are being, for example, thermal screening uh, that's built uh, into the um, methods and monitoring systems of airports. Uh, UV sanitizing has become a popular, deep cleaning between flights and airports, uh, the use of antimicrobial screens right away from all the various different people that you're going to enter, down to packed food um, and sanitized food that's on the flights to the use of digital menus right away uh, across your travel experience. And uh, as well, uh, we know that in many cases of large plane travel, the only flights that are being uh, used now and are those more modern aircrafts with HEPA filters. That's high, high efficiency particulate air filters that are going to change the uh, air in the plane every two to three minutes. And that is going to filter out uh, anything that's larger than 0.3 microns uh, and 99.97% of your pathogens are going to get caught in that so these it's it's completely different but i would encourage the listener to still listen to this podcast um with the following information in mind that the SARS coronavirus uh, that we are dealing with now is one of many pathogens And hopefully when this crisis is over and there's a vaccine out there, or however the end of this is going to look, there are many different other pathogens that uh, one can consider uh, a risk to athletes whilst traveling. And it is best to bear in mind when listening to the remainder of this podcast to keep an ear out for all of those bits of information.
0: Thanks Wayne. And I think that's a great segue into the rest of the podcast and we'll leave the listener with that now. Athletes and team staff members are often required to travel vast distances to compete. Does this travel put them in an increased risk of illness?
1: I think it's common common knowledge that uh, travel is increasingly recognised as a source of rapid spread of infectious disease. But on the other hand, we've got no no means of uh, transport for athletes getting to international competition. I think if one looks at the sports medicine literature, there's really a gap in the information on travelling athletes. You know, go to the travel medicine, aviation medicine, body of literature and actually look at some of the academic outputs in those areas and really bring those back to sport and exercise medicine.
0: That's why it's great that we've got you on the line. Can you highlight some of that evidence from those different medical bodies about the the risk of exposure to different types of pathogens during travel? There are
1: various uh, recognized outbreaks through travel. Tuberculosis is one pathogens of uh, other bacteria like E. coli and Shigera are well-documented, as well as a number of uh, viral infections that have been documented through, uh, spread through travel. And those include measles, Ebola, uh, rubella, then the SARS and MERS, both of which are a type of uh, coronavirus. Influenza, of course we know uh, at the moment with the COVID-19, how travel plays a role in that as well. There are also fungal pathogens that have been documented uh, inside aircraft and other areas. And then there are a host of other uh, uh, bacteria, viruses and fungi, most of which are commensal organisms. So when one looks further at the transmission of uh, infectious disease during travel, uh, we know that there are five ways that, that that can occur. The first is via contact. It can be either direct contact, which is person to person, or it can be indirect contact, which is person being infected from a surface or an object, and that that is called a fomite. Then we can get droplet and airborne. Droplets are landing directly on the mucosal lining of the nose, mouth, and the eyes, or they can be inhaled, and they affect people up to about one meter from where you are, The airborne manner of spread is aerosol in nature. Those droplets become smaller by evaporation, and you get small aerosols, which are less than 10 microns large. They remain suspended for longer periods. They can get inhaled deep into the lungs. The airborne and aerosolized pathogens can travel much further. If one looks at those droplets or aerosols, they can drop down or sink to the surface and that will be touch surfaces. And we know that many of these pathogens can live up to about five or seven days. So um, the only other ways that um, infections can be transmitted is vector-borne, for example, if they're mosquitoes or other insects that can spread disease, those are known to be on aircraft at times. And we know that's why the planes um, are sprayed before takeoff. And then common vehicle uh, transmission, which is the scientific term for food and water spread. So those are um, looking at the food that is served on the airlines, the drinks that are served on the airlines and how those can uh, spread as well.
0: Sounds like quite a scary um, environment. How should we attempt to solve this problem?
1: The interesting thing is that There's very, very very little evidence in the athletic population. But when you look at the athletes themselves, we think that there's an even greater risk. A study uh, that I conducted together with Martin Schwellness that we published in 2012 looked at the uh, Super 14 rugby tournament. We looked at all the illnesses before they set off travelling, then after they travelled for five time uh, zones, and then return after the home country. And we found there's a two to three fold increase in risk. And we've got Paralympic uh, data as well that actually shows uh, that if you're traveling from uh, remote areas, your risk of all illness and particularly respiratory illness is increased. So it allows us to actually form a model that one can use to look at how we think about this, looking at athletes and their various different risk factors and how we can prevent uh, this happening. If one looks at a model of illness prevention now from an academic perspective, I think one's got to look at the intrinsic risk factors leading to your predisposed athlete. It uh, would be poor sleep uh, patterns, which we know many athletes have, transient stress of traveling, and then the immune-suppressed athlete, either via jet lag or by overtraining or... Athletes with, for example, spinal cord injury, some of our disabled athletes uh, would have a transient uh, immune dysfunction. If we have the perfect storm, we get exposure to a whole lot of extrinsic risk factors. Then we get the susceptible athlete um, and those risk factors are all the things that one uh, comes into contact with uh, inside an aircraft. So uh, we're looking at... Restricted space, high contact rates with uh, other people and surfaces. uh, There could be limited toilets on an aircraft. The circulation is uh, sometimes insufficient. The ventilation, ineffective cleaning, um, contamination of various different surfaces. We know flight duration is a factor. The climate and geographical influence of where that uh, plane is going to. How the crew moves around is also very important. Your seating uh, that you choose and your uh, passenger movement due to those seating allocations, the dry air. We know there's a, uh, a modicum of radiation as well. And then um, hypoxia uh, with relative hypoxia and, and low barometric pressure uh, in the aircraft as well. So you, I think what happens is if you're going to get sick athletes, it's probably going to be a combination of a predisposed athlete uh, who then gets exposed to the extrinsic risk factors making you susceptible and then your inciting event might be is if you come in contact uh, with another individual who uh, is actively ill and just the the increase of load of pathogens is uh, perhaps too much and then presents uh, with an illness.
0: You've mentioned a couple of factors about the traveling environment can you go further in depth onto what actually is unique about it?
1: So if you have a look at the, this unique environment inside the aircraft, there, there's some things that you can do something about, and there are some things that uh, we're powerless to do anything about. So, um, for example, uh, limited toilets, uh, circulation in the plane, the climate influence, the geographical influence of other passengers, crew movement, uh, barometric pressure and hypoxia, really, there's very little that you can do about that there's a lot of stuff that you can do things about. If you have a look at the various different pathogens, um, you can identify looking at where the pathogen load is uh, the highest. The dirtiest place on a plane is um, by far the tray table. And if one has a look at a tray table, it has uh, over 2,000 colony-forming units per square inch the second actually place associated with travel is drinking fountains so either in airports or there's some planes that do have drinking fountains on them the buttons and the metal surrounding that drinking fountain has got about 1240 um, colony forming units per square inch Um, the other dirty places are the lavatory flush buttons the overhead air vents And the seat belt buckles are all areas that um, have about 250, 260 colony-forming units per square inch. Now, um, (laughs) this is, one needs to take those figures uh, with a reference point. So what are other dirty surfaces that we're all going to acknowledge are dirty surfaces? For example, your money. Your money is only five colony-forming units per square inch and cell phones, uh, 27. Uh, colony forming units per square inch. And the home toilet seat is about 170 odd. So we're talking about double that um, in many of these common places on a plane and 10 times that much with respect to the tray table. So what that does do is, um, Liam, it identifies areas where you can actually target to reduce the pathogenic load in those particular areas. Another really interesting area is looking at people's behavior and the movements um, as well as the transmission of droplet mediated diseases uh, when there are these large transcontinental airline flights. And um, a great study um, published by Vicky Strover-Hertzberg uh, in 2018 has shown that about 80% of people in the aisle seat get up during their flights. About 60% of those that get up walk around versus only 43% of people who sit in the window seats walk around. So what that means is that When one goes on a flight to visit the toilet or have a walk around, remember people are touching the aisle seats most to stabilize themselves en route to visit the bathroom. That then, if you are occupying an aisle seat, is going to give you the greatest chance of being in contact with more pathogens. Study also showed that about that Passengers who pick the window seat and stay there are the least likely to be exposed to cold and flu viruses. Just remember that if one is choosing to go and sit in a window seat and stay there and not walk around, then one should probably use compression stockings because if the, the, the more you sit, still the greater the chance of uh, deep venous thrombosis so one 's got to balance all of these of these risks it 's also Very interesting if one has a look at the areas, uh, if there is somebody who is sick uh, on a plane, uh, are in risk or increased risk of transmission. And there is the two-row rule for infectious disease uh, that was published in 2016, which shows that there's a 6% risk to passengers of getting ill seated within two rows of the infected uh, person. And that is two rows in front of you, two rows behind you, and the row in which that index case is sitting. So it really affects five rows, and it affects you right the way across that row. There's a 2% risk of people sitting further than those five uh, rows. Um, The filtration systems in a plane are also uh, really interesting, and they can do very quick, complete air changes. And those filters actually uh, take out uh, more than 99% of the um, microbes. Still, there are some that uh, get through. There are luckily other things that we can do to mitigate against that risk, even if, the, if some pathogens do fit through the filtration system. And that is a good hand washing, um, that hand washing needs to be done properly. Uh, and in combination with hand sanitizers. It's really uh, worthwhile maybe becoming a germaphobe on an airplane uh, to give yourself the best chance of uh, participating uh, illness-free.
0: Some really interesting insights there. Let's turn to some uh, sort of practical tips. So whilst I've got you in the line, you can help me out. In July, I'm accompanying the under 20 Australia athletics team to the world championships in Nairobi, Kenya. So what can I do and what should I be telling my athletes to do to reduce the risk of travel related illness?
1: Liam, the first thing I would do is actually just set up an educational briefing session, uh, for your athletes. I think that's the, it's really an educational, uh, endeavor this. And, um, uh, one, one needs to present some of the data that i 've been speaking about. Uh, they can see that there is science behind um, a lot of the areas where the pathogens lie and that uh, the science that shows the efficacy of hand wipes and other wipes uh, anti uh, microbial wipes and they do know then and can see that there 's reason for them getting really involved with a strategy that uh, has been shown to work. So that educational briefing session for all the traveling staff, and really it's an ethos, uh, ethos that has to permeate through the uh, team from the athlete right the way to all officials as well. So it, it, is, it stands to reason that if one is uh, uh, in in business class, you have a larger distance between yourself and other travel travelers. So the density is lower, but uh, we understand that that perhaps isn't possible. Seat selection. So um, I advise towards the very front or towards the back of the plane and really stay there as much as possible. Obviously take anti-DBT countermeasures or do, do the, the exercises in your seat. Uh, When boarding the plane, I would advise people to touch as little as possible, especially the backrests of the aisle seats, as we know that that's where people touch on their way uh, to and from the bathroom. Now, um, when the athlete takes their seat, um, the next step is to clean the environment with an antimicrobial wipe. Uh, There are many on the market, choose ones that have greater than 60% of alcohol. Um, that's been shown to uh, damage the viral structure the most. And then uh, one goes for all the areas that I've mentioned before the tray table, um, overhead air vent, uh, the seat belt buckle, um, and depends. I mean, one doesn't want to get carried away. But uh, there are some people who even advise um, uh, the seat itself uh, and the armrests as well. And uh, when one uses these uh, the a- antimicrobial wipes, there's a three step process. First of all, have to let's say it's the tra- tray table that we are uh, disinfecting, cover it, um, make sure it's wet. It must be wet and it must stay wet for a minute. So you make uh, at least contact um, with the disinfectant wipe for about a minute and then you allow it to dry and then put it back into its position. I do want to say a little bit about that air vent. Air vents are one of the uh, areas that are uh, shown to have um, pathogens. The about 258 um, colony forming units. So (laughs) that does look quite dirty. So you'd clean those, but don't switch them off because um, you position that air vent and open it to allow your flow between yourself and your neighbor. So What you're doing is you're actually creating yourself a little like laminar airflow theater uh, between yourself and and your your neighbor. Age-old question about uh, face masks. I advise all my athletes to use a face mask. And the reason for that is that it's been shown that if you use a face mask, um, it decreases the touching of your own face. And humans touch their face on average about 20 times an hour also allows uh, the athletes, you know, buy-in to know that they're serious about pre- preventing illness. If one is going to use a mask, it just is important to have the correct uh, techniques for putting the mask on and off. Remember, uh, take it off using the straps and not touching the mask itself and then discarding it. And then again, um, washing hands and using a hand sanitizer. Again, just hand hygiene, very important. The correct method during the flight after visiting the bathroom and uh, followed by long-acting hand sanitizers uh, with a minimum of uh, about 60 to 70% alcohol. And again, some of those uh, shown to be active for about four to five hours and then repeating the hand sanitizers after that. The antimicrobial wipes when touching a flush button uh, of, the, of the toilet and again, one can use a wipe or a um, tissue to open the door on the way back from the bathroom, just to avoid touching uh, aisle seat backs. Uh, avoid insufficiently warmed food and beverages which have not been bought. Uh, coffee might be problematic on some airlines where they just heat the water and not uh, boil it. If at in all doubt, uh, just rather uh, leave it out and don't do that. Drink, obviously, from bottled Bottled water don't drink from uh, potable water fountains in the plane because we, again, know that those are quite dirty. I think it's very important to maintain hydration status uh, while one's flying, Um, either by drinking but also on the mucosal membrane. So using um, a a nasal gel, um, there's muriprocin, which... uh, uh, is is used. It has an antibacterial uh, agent in it, um, but uh, I think it's the it's more likely to be the um, hydrating of the mucosal membranes that uh, is important when using that. Again, no uh, conducted studies that actually show um, the benefit. But again, to look at the risk uh, and potential benefits. The the last things that I do is I just use my own pillow, if possible, and uh, travel with a number of pillowcases that uh, can be um, exchanged and then washed. Uh, And that's been shown that the the pillows and sometimes the blankets are not really changed regularly on flights. So if using a blanket, uh, make sure it's come from a sealed uh, packet.
0: I think that's jam-packed with practical personal of wisdom for the listener there is there actually any data to back up that this huge structure and routine that I'd be asking my athletes to do will definitely reduce the risk of illness
1: well yeah I think I think there's a certain amount of, 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 uh, of luck in it when you travel as well as to um, how these things work out but there, there are some data and uh, I was involved uh, with a a study together um, with Martin Showness and the Pretoria group that was published last year, which looked at the super rugby uh, illness prevention strategies. And that is a program called the TIPS program. And uh, that was published uh, last year in BJSM, which looked at um, a three-year period, which served as our baseline. And then uh, we brought all the team physicians together and gave them a full briefing on various uh, aspects of uh, the traveling athlete and asked them to do a number of the things. Not all of the things I must point out that I've spoken about today, but there were everything from pre-tournament medical screening of the respiratory gastrointestinal and dermatological system. Uh, There was during-tournament advice and then a number of additional guidelines uh, for during travel, some of which I've spoken about today. But we've described that program um, uh, quite well in that uh, particular publication. And we were very uh, happy to have seen in the subsequent four-year period after the three-year control period that uh, we had a significant reduction in illnesses in super rugby teams that were able to uh, institute the illness prevention program. So I'd advise the listener to uh, go and uh, read um, uh, that study. Uh, we'll provide the link and um, have a look at the program that was documented uh, in that particular paper.
0: Thank you for sharing your expertise today with the listener Professor Derman. Thanks Liam. Thanks for tuning into this BGSM podcast. I hope it's armed you with tactics of how to combat the risk of travel-related illness. I hope you get to have a physically active, illness-free day.